Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would attend to the preaching, that I would speak the words of truth in your scriptures, and that your spirit would attend to the hearing so that we might hear the truth, that you would open our eyes to see, that we would see clearly who Jesus is, that we would understand with our hearts and with our actions what it means to be a follower of Christ by your word as we read it now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We'll be reading chapter 8, verse 22 through chapter 9, verse 1, as we read a couple weeks ago. But we're going to focus in on verse 34, down through chapter 9, verse 1. Still, the context is essential, so uh, we will read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Hear God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may remember a couple weeks ago, it seemed like when Jesus healed the blind man, he didn't quite do it right. He healed him at first, and then the blind man could only see partially. It was foggy. It wasn't clear. And so Jesus healed him a second time. And then he could see clearly. But we discovered that it wasn't that Jesus had failed in that instance. 
It's not as though Jesus got it wrong. Instead, Jesus, as Mark tells us, was teaching something about the disciples' own understanding of the person of Jesus. You see, the blind man finally saw clearly. And that story is followed immediately with the story of Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they give a partial answer. People partially see you. They see you as John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. That's a partial vision of who Jesus is because Jesus was a prophet, but he was that and so much more. And so then Peter clarifies, you are the Christ. And that is true. And that is the full answer. But we come to find out in the very next passage in which we are now, that Peter actually doesn't quite understand exactly what it means that Jesus is the Christ. So yet there is yet another clarity to be brought for the disciples to understand truly who Jesus is. And so as Jesus taught them, I am the Messiah, they saw it was foggy to them. They saw him as a military leader, as a nationalistic leader. They didn't see clearly what he was about to do. So he had to teach them and he sat them down intentionally It says in verse 27, he went with them to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. He didn't even go into the city. He stayed in the villages. It was a little bit of a teaching retreat, if you will. Because in verse 31, it says he began to teach them. And so as Jesus went to teach them, he says, the Son of Man has to suffer. The Messiah that you proclaim me to be, that is correct. Don't tell anyone yet because you don't understand it yet. I have to suffer. I have to die. And then he continues to bring even more clarity to what it means that Jesus is the Christ and that we follow him. In verse 34, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not a good sales pitch. If you want to have lots of followers, you tell them they're going to get whatever they want. Yet Jesus leads the clarifying explanation of what his work is by saying it's a, it's a kingdom of suffering. It's a kingdom of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following me. So you might have been taught in elementary school and middle school uh, that when you write a paper, you give a thesis and then you give supports for it. That's what Jesus does here. His thesis is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he supports it with four fours. The word four, F-O-R. There's four of them in this passage, starting in verse 35. And then there's one in verse 36 and one in verse 37 and one in verse 38. And it's clear in the English. It's just as clear in the Greek. It's Jesus' structure. And he's using these to support this fact that to follow Jesus is to live a life of suffering. It's counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect, but this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples as he trains them to see more clearly who he is and what it means to follow him. So let's, let's look here at Jesus's thesis, if you will. Jesus's point. It's this new expectation. It's a call to follow. And it's an expectation of abandonment. He says, if anyone would come after me, anyone. We also need to take note of who he's talking to, because in verse 34 it says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, before he had just been talking to the disciples, now he's telling everyone, the disciples and the crowd, if anyone is going to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is not insider secret knowledge. 
This is not something that we wait until you're in. We don't hook you into Christianity and then tell you, guess what? It's going to be hard. Jesus leads with this, and so we lead with this. This is a life, a Christian life is one of suffering from the beginning. It's not one where we build our kingdom. It's a public call, and it's both to the disciples and to all who listen. He says, if anyone would come after me. Now, Jesus has already told us in verse 31 where he's going. Jesus is going to be rejected, and he's going to be mocked. He's going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So if anybody's going to come after me, guess what? You have to follow Jesus's pattern, he says. You have to be ready for rejection, for suffering, and even death. Because he is that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, rejected The one who was pierced for our transgressions, oppressed, afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. And that's the one that we follow. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Self-denial is not something we are well trained in in this culture. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're well trained in self-gratification. Self-denial, though, goes deeper than giving up chocolate for Lent. Self-denial is a denial of our very self. It's where we surrender our reign over our lives. And Jesus clarifies a little bit further with the next phrase. He says, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny your very self, not just give up a few things you don't like. You have to deny your very self and take up your cross. Now, sometimes I remember when I was younger and I heard the the phrase, I'm supposed to take up my cross. I thought, you know, if I can go to the gym enough, I'll be strong enough. I can carry that cross. Right? As Jesus carried it up the hill, there's, there's, it, it's almost like a challenge. I can, I can do this if I just build up enough strength. But where did that cross go? That cross went to the place of sacrifice. To carry our cross means to carry death on our shoulders. To, be, to take ourselves to the place where we die to ourselves. Now, I also heard somebody say one time that to carry our cross... That's a big thing. Kind of like a hurricane or a tornado. If something comes through, if if God allows a tornado to come through and take out your house, sometimes you can step back and say, this is so big, I have no control. I'm going to trust the Lord. But it's the little things that are more difficult. I can carry my cross, yet we forget that when we carry the cross, there are splinters in the cross. Sometimes those splinters are the things that drive us to surrender and to give up. What about the little things day in, day out that we don't die to? where we don't deny ourselves and we continue to get angry over this and we continue to be frustrated over that and we continue to become defeated over whatever it is and it seems like a small thing, but we let it become a big thing because we've not really taken up our cross where we die to all these things, big and small. To take up our cross is to expect to be a martyr. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we follow Jesus. Our following Jesus, however, does not earn us our salvation. Our following Jesus, we do that as more than just an example that we try to imitate because when Jesus died and rose, there was real effective power in that, and all who are united to Christ die with him and rise with him. 
It is, it is the power of salvation that draws us, makes us able to die to ourselves and rise in new life. So it's not just that we try hard to suffer well and think that that's going to save us. No, we depend entirely on what Jesus has done in his suffering and resurrection. And it is that salvation that makes us able then to die to self and rise in new life with him. Because all throughout the New Testament, we're reminded, and we see the picture throughout the Old Testament as well, but we're reminded that suffering has to precede glory. Suffering has to precede glory. Romans 8 says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And then Acts 14, 22 says, encourage the disciples by saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Peter 4, 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We have to suffer in order to, to partake in his glory. There's so many people who want the glory. We want the end. We want heaven. You know the old song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We want the end, but we don't take seriously the suffering that is prescribed for Christians. But just as seriously as we suffer, we will partake in the glory. And just as seriously as we partake in the glory, we must suffer. That is a counterintuitive truth. And that is what Jesus is teaching his disciples so that they might see more clearly what it means to follow him. He is the sufferer and we follow him as sufferers with him. And so he gives us reasons. He gives the supports here. Let's talk about the four fours. Four number one is in verse 35. It says four Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Okay, so here in this verse and in verse 36 and 37, we have to look at those verses side by side because he talks about life. Mark uses the word life and then he uses the word soul. That's English falling apart for us. That's actually the same word in Greek. Life and soul. You might have a footnote in your Bibles that tell you that these are the same thing. So this word, Mark is intentionally, and Jesus used this word, and Mark is uh, repeating it for us. Intentionally, there's a play on words here, emphasizing for us the dichotomy between life and soul. I'll call that temporary life versus true life. Temporary life, this is the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the comforts we, we pursue, versus our true life, which is our soul, which is looking to Christ, faith in him. The rea- our, our reality before a holy God. And these two lives are at odds. They cannot both be served. Your life is either here temporarily or your life is there kept in heaven. As Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, he's saying you've died to this life, this temporary life, and your life, that is your true life, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life. Christ is our true life. And that is where we live and that is where we set our sights and that is where we invest our time and our money. And we have to really seriously analyze where do we give our time? 
Where do we give our money? What do we talk about? Are we more invested in our temporary lives or are we more invested in our true lives, our eternal lives? We can grasp a hold of earth's goods and say, you know, I'm willing to part with it if God tells me to part with it. But I think that willingness is not quite enough. Christians say, I'm willing to surrender if God makes me surrender this, but I think we need to possess more than just a willingness and actually take steps in that direction. We should possess a readiness, which I think implies a little bit of action. I use that word in a sense that it implies we take steps here. We take steps to lay down this temporary life and to forego the pleasures and the reputations of this life in pursuit of our true lives. And so maybe what we ought to do then, instead of just being willing to let go of these things, is to actually ungrasp them. To let go of these things. And some things we know we need to let go of and drop out of our lives and rid them entirely. Other things we need to let go of. And then if the Lord's going to take them, let him take them. If he's going to leave them in our possession, he leaves them in our possession. But now our hearts are unlatched from these things of the world. And sometimes we take active steps to remove these things that the world calls good. That we know are distractions from the pursuit of our true lives. And we also release not just the things that we do possess, but we also need to release from our hearts the things that we want to possess. We all have goals. And I'm not just talking about materialistic things that we want. I'm talking about we, we have goals in relationships and in business and Sure, it may be in homes and cars as well, but we need to let go of the lures of this temporary life. So what are those things that you're working hard for right now that you think is going to make you happy? The next achievement, the next acquisition that you think is going to fulfill those things that you are longing for. We live in a culture that lives for the weekend. So if we can just get to a self-indulgent couple days where we can just kick our feet up and take care of number one, we think that's going to take care of us, but it's never enough. We always need the next weekend. And I'm guilty of this. I was really looking forward to a break last week. But when you travel with a five-month-old who's teething, who doesn't want to sleep in a new environment, who's not feeling well, Rest just falls right through your hands, right through your fingers. And I learned that I had looked forward too much to that break being a time that's going to fill me up. That's not what I needed. I needed to trust the Lord again. It's not these temporary things in this world that are going to fulfill us. Instead, we need to let go of the things of this world and take a hold of and grasp with all our might onto something so much greater. We hold on to Christ and his gospel, as Jesus says in verse 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You lose your temporary life and you gain the whole world. Your true life. Yet so many people deny Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you need to deny yourself. It's one or the other. Jesus moves on and he talks about, he gives another four in verse 36. 
We'll take uh, verses 36 and 37 together because they together talk about the value of the true life, the value of the soul as opposed to the value of the temporary life. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Again, remember the word soul here is the same word as life in verse 35. If we value one, the temporary life or the, the true life, the other will suffer. It's a trade. We cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says in Matthew 6. And the value of the true life of your soul, caring for your soul is so much more important than caring for the temporary life. There's nothing that you can buy, nothing you can acquire, nothing you can own, nothing you can use to impress others from riches to influence to comfort that you can give back in exchange for your soul. Because eternity is happening now in our hearts. Imagine, we all have role models. We all have people we want to be like, these, these visions of a life that we want to achieve. And some of us have individuals that we look to. So for some of us, we picture the most successful individual you can picture is, um, is someone with grand properties and luxurious homes across the world. That's the height of accomplishment. For some, you picture uh, a man with a faithful wife and obedient children. For some, we see a man with great influence in the community and politics or somebody with great achievement in the academic or scientific worlds. For some of us, we picture athleticism and accomplishments. For some of us, we picture great fame or talent with the cameras always on and the crowds always flocking to us. For some, we picture physical perfection worthy of a magazine cover. And for some, we picture a philanthropist known by all people as a good person. Now imagine that there's somebody who has all those things. At the end of his life, the world would say, that is a life well lived. But I warn you, that is just a temporary life. Imagine that person who has every single one of these things. He's labored his entire life to accomplish and cultivate great successes. Everything the world has to offer. The riches of Jeff Bezos, the athletic legendary success of Tom Brady, the mansionist properties of Taylor Swift, the musical genius of John Bellion or James Taylor, the influence of U.S. president. All in one person. Don't you wish you could be that person? No, I hope not. Because imagine on that last day when God calls this man to give account for his life and he arrives without his soul. His temporary life was wildly successful, but he forgot about his true life. He neglected it. And the judge on that day says, I'm ashamed of you. So then the man begs and says, take my talent, take my trophies, take my earnings. I'll trade it all to get my soul back. And God says, I'm sorry, your soul costs more than that. And so the man begs for another trade and he offers his properties and his homes and his boats and his cars because he knew all along that they were never that fulfilling anyway. And God says, I'm sorry, your soul costs more than that. So the man begrudgingly offers up the influence that he had on this earth, all his power and all his community sway and all his fame and all his attractiveness. And God says, I'm sorry, your soul costs more than that. And so lastly, he offers his family his beloved wife, his kids, whom he raised with politeness, and all his closest friends. And God says, I'm sorry, your soul costs more than all that combined. 
God continues, he says, you lived your whole life for you. The payment for your soul can only be made by my son, Jesus Christ. Had you received what Jesus had done and cared for your soul, that substitution for your soul would have paid for it. You would have saved your soul, but instead of laying down your brittle empire every day, you kept it all for yourself. And your temporary life was all you had left, and now it's gone. And it cost you your soul. Depart from me, you evildoer. I pray that that is none of us on that last day. That we would be active participants in denying ourselves, letting go of the lures of the world. And so when Jesus calls you and me to to give up our temporary lives, do we take that seriously or do we think that that's for other people? That's why nobody wants to be called to Africa as a missionary, because we have to give up all of our riches. That's the quintessential example. Yet day in, day out, we continue to hold on to these things, no matter where you are. And we think it's just for those who are called elsewhere to extreme conditions. No, it's called, this is a call for you and for me to surrender today right here. We have been called to die to our temporary lives, to kill our very self-reign and actively deny our own worldly life. God is not impressed by your pretty house or your fancy car, by your moral lifestyle or your presence in the pews. He wants every corner of your soul. Expect suffering. Anticipate rejection in this world because we fit in this world less and less every day. Don't flee hardship. God uses those things to train his people. Don't avoid the reality of your finitude. We must prepare for death. We must talk about death. When I taught at CBCA, I had so many students ask me why I talked about death so much. Our world is just afraid of it. It's a real thing that we must prepare for. And what we do then is we care for our true life. We care for our souls and we neglect the things of this world that we might pursue the things of God. So I reiterate to us today what we are told throughout the New Testament that it is a blessed thing to suffer. It's not a disruption of God's design for your life. It's a guarantee for normal Christians that we will suffer for life to be hard. And it's proof that God is training his child in true faith and independence on him. But it's not all bad news. Remember, suffering precedes glory. And Jesus gets to that here in verse 38 with the last four. Verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The kingdom of God coming with power is the final result for those of us who suffer with Christ in this world. Suffering precedes glory. We are headed to glory. But Jesus starts with a warning. He says, you can have an allegiance to this adulterous and sinful generation. This generation, that's the term Jesus used to describe the Pharisees. You can have an allegiance with the elite of this world, but it is adulterous and sinful. Or you can have... You can be associated with me, 
Either you can be ashamed of me and be in league with the world, or you can be ashamed of the trinkets of this adulterous and sinful generation and be united to Christ. Those are the two options. To Christ and to his gospel. Some people say, I'm, I'm all about Jesus. He was such a good teacher. But have they forgotten his gospel, his message, the truth in his word? And Jesus says, do not be ashamed of me or the gospel. These are things that we must stand firmly on and hold on to. And it highlights the dichotomy between this adulterous and sinful generation versus Christ and his gospel. Don't think that you can skip out on the suffering of this world and just jump to the glory, but also don't think that if you're suffering, Christ does not also carry you to completion. I know many people in this room who have given up many things intentionally for the sake of the gospel. People who suffer regularly. People who have had great wealth and possessions and denied them for the sake of the king. Be comforted. Christ has promised that that has its rewards. The kingdom of God is going to come with power. And when that kingdom comes, it is the weak in this world who are going to reign with him. It's you and me as we cling to Christ and realize we have nothing else in this world. We are the ones who will reign with him. And that kingdom of God is already here. Yet it is not yet complete. You've heard me say this already, not yet. The kingdom has come because by Christ's powerful sacrifice and by his resurrection, it is here and we are welcomed in. And in the beginning of Mark, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. How do you get into the kingdom? Repent and believe. That's what it takes. And then Jesus says in Mark 10, we're not there yet, but we will get there. He says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God because they're clinging on to the temporary life. And then in Luke 9, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We're all in. We don't regret the things that we've given up. We look forward to his reign. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a spiritual rebirth. This is our true life coming to life, looking to Christ. And that's how we join the kingdom of God. To be born again is to see that kingdom and it is here. But Jesus and Mark are also talking about the kingdom of God and in a different sense. Because he says there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He says, you're not going to see it come with power, but after it has come with power, you're going to see it. And many of these disciples did see it. You have to remember, Jesus is talking here. He calls himself the son of man. You may remember that reference. That's what um, Jesus calls himself in chapter two. The son of man is the one in Daniel seven who reigns. He is the king. Uh, who, who rules over his people. And, and the phrase, when he comes, is also a reference back to Daniel 7. So it says in verse 38, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a reference back to Daniel 7, saying there's going to be a day where there's going to be great power on display. And the Son of Man is going to be the one riding on the clouds. And when he comes, references the beginning of an era beginning of this new kingdom that Christ sets up. And the kingdom of God having come in power or after it has come with power is a reminder in the way that, that Jesus phrases it. You're going to see this kingdom after it has come. Nobody saw Jesus rise. 
But when he rose, that kingdom came with power. And it's consistent with his promises. So far, he's already promised, I'm going to die, and after three days, I'm going to rise. That's the kingdom coming with power. And then, but then there are some other ways that they saw the kingdom come. They saw the kingdom of God arrive on the scene. And a commentator, R.T. France, does a good job of, of summarizing these for us. We're going to get to this passage next time. But chapter 9, verse 2 starts the transfiguration. Seeing the king, the Messiah, the son of man glowing in all, not all his glory, but in, in fullness of glory. And the, these people saw it and didn't quite understand what it was, but that was a foretaste. That was a foretaste of his coming glory when he reigns in fullness in the end. And there is power when Jesus tore the curtain in the temple that made us able to be in communion with the Father through Christ. And there is real power over sin and Satan when Jesus died and when he rose. And there is power when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. There is the power in the Spirit's descent upon his people at Pentecost. And the kingdom of God comes in power as the Spirit works among the persecuted early church and as the Spirit works among the persecuted Christians today. And there is power in the fall of Jerusalem as the kingdom of the Son of Man replaces that of the earthly city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And all these things, some of the disciples standing there got to witness. They saw the kingdom of God coming with power. And so you and I are welcomed into this kingdom of God to be a part of it. Eternity starts now for those who come in. But like the blind man who saw in part and then finally saw clearly, we will see clearly one day. We will see him face to face. We will see in the very throne room of God himself, of the majestic creator, we will see his glory. And we will see his reign and fullness when, when wickedness is tossed into the eternal lake of fire, when sin is gone, when death is eradicated, we will see the glory of our king. And we will see him clearly as he is. And Mark tells us we're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory in chapter 13. And Jesus says, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Revelation 5 says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I look forward to seeing that glory one day in fullness. That's the kingdom of God come with power and we will reign with him provided that we suffer with him. Entrance into that eternal kingdom is open now and it will close. Entrance to that kingdom is for those who give all that they have to Christ, who trust him alone. Let's be people who talk about that, who welcome people in, who aren't ashamed of Christ and his gospel, who are willing to tell our neighbors that there are grave consequences for those who cling to the temporary life and forsake the true life. Jesus will deny and be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. Let's invite all in to see who Christ is so that they might also see him perfectly and clearly face to face in heaven on that last day. What that means is we have to set our sights there now, today. Let go of this world constantly. Remind ourselves, let go, let go, let go of the temporary life. I'll tell you one more story here and then I'll, I'll close. I read it in the news just this week. There's a 
great unrest in Ukraine, to put it lightly. Uh, there was a torture chamber that had been under Russian control that Ukrainians had taken back, and there were, there were um, hundreds of bodies found with evidence of torture. This is 2022. This is in our world. This was this week. In one of the torture chambers, somebody had scratched something on the wall. It was the Lord's Prayer. Can you imagine being faced with death itself? Torture, pain, rejection, everything that this world has to offer stripped away. All comforts gone. Yet holding on to that one truth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. As I face death itself, Lord, your will be done. As I face the challenge of not knowing whether we're going to have enough money or if our family is going to survive this crisis, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Let us live with that in mind. Let us be reminded that we suffer with him now in order that we might also be glorified with him on that last day.